So about 50 of us from Sovereign Grace were at uh, Camp Judson this last week. And uh, Sovereign Grace invested uh, to bring uh, Dr. Jim Fain to be the speaker uh, at camp. He's a teaching fellow for ACBC, uh, uh, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. Uh, He's one that trains uh, biblical counselors. And uh, we got to spend the whole week with him. And you never know uh, when a speaker comes in. Uh, I mean, what, what we paid him to do is come and uh, teach. But what we all got from Jim was a down-to-earth brother that I think learned every single person's name in the camp, down to the child. And, and he really was a part of the camp with us. And we got to see the fruitfulness of someone who is so full of Christ, overflowing with the love of Christ and wisdom of Christ. So that uh, most of the conver- conversations, if you walked around, were about what he was teaching us. It was, I mean, it was my favorite year ever at Camp Judson. It was so edifying. It was so encouraging uh, to uh, share this with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And several of, uh, of those that were there asked what I was preaching on this week. And they, I was going to start Ephesians 1, and we we're going to jump into that. And they they said, why don't you do an overview? Why don't you teach uh, some of what Jim taught us? Uh, and I said, well, you just heard it, but I knew what they were thinking. There was so much that it would be, it would be so good to review. It would be so good to also bring back and share some of the blessing uh, that we got with, with all of you. And uh, the good news is, is we did get the audio recordings, and we'll put those up. Uh, Brandon, we'll have Brandon put those up on our website this week so you can actually go uh, listen to the teachings uh, there. Uh, So I just want to give credit. A lot of what I'm teaching is what we heard from Jim. I don't want to put him on the hook. I'm not quoting him word for word necessarily. Uh, So I don't want, want you him to have to own whatever I say, but I want you to know that uh, uh, I'm uh, sharing with you the things he taught us in some of those same passages. Uh, One way to think about counseling is discipleship. That's what it is. It's Christian discipleship. It's, It's teaching one another to observe everything that Christ has commanded us. And if you want to think of discipleship in two categories, you can think of the formative discipleship, and you can think of restorative discipleship. So formative is looking at what God has called us to in his word, and we're shaped and we're formed by it. Restorative is what most people is what most of biblical counseling is. Once a person is 
struggling and suffering and needs help, they need restorative discipleship. Both of them are important, but biblical counseling usually falls in more of the restorative uh, type of discipleship. Uh, in your notes there, I was, uh, I'm trying to give you what I continually heard him say. He taught about a lot of things, but he kept coming back to something like this chart. The problem uh, that we face uh, from a worldly perspective is usually circumstances or suffering. So as a counselor, and when we're looking at uh, what issue or what struggle the person uh, who comes for help, they're coming uh, because of a problem. The world says the problem is circumstances or suffering. The scripture tells us that the problem is within us, not with outside of us. It's from within our own soul. It's a sin struggle. That doesn't mean we don't have difficult circumstances. It just means that the most uh, the biggest enemy is not the circumstance, it's always within our heart. Uh, so that the goal of counseling from a worldly perspective is relief from the suffering. Relief from the circumstance. But what God would have for us in his word is not relief, but redemption. He wants our hearts to trust him. He wants us to kill sin within our hearts. God cares more about your sanctification than your safety. God's main goal in your life is not necessarily to give you relief from the problem or circumstance you're in. But what's always the goal of God is your redemption, your sanctification. You're being conformed into the image of Christ. So the solution the world would give us or, or a, a secular therapist would give us is they would teach us how to avoid or separate from the suffering. They would try to get us relief as soon as possible. But the solution we get from the scripture is faith and obedience to God, repentance for what our hearts are doing in the midst of suffering. So the source of change from a worldly perspective will either come from the therapist or the therapist will try to empower the person, point them to themselves, and scripture points us to a savior. And so he continually talked about how we read our Bibles, we, we turn Jesus into a therapist rather than a redeemer. One of the lines that just stuck with me is he said, one ounce of sin is more dangerous to you than all the suffering in the world. And if God is good, he will be faithful to help you 
fight your sin. He paid for your sin on the cross in justification. He dealt with it there. But in sanctification, through the power of the Spirit and through the Word, He helps us put sin to death. And so God cares more about our sin than our suffering. If God's goal for the Christian's life was to keep them out of suffering, well, then God's failing greatly. But that is not his goal. And this was the paradigm that he gave us. Suffering produces sanctification. Sanctification produces satisfaction in Christ. Joy in Christ. And the type of sentence he would say is something like this. Suffering is the exquisite means God uses to bring about Christ-likeness in us and joy in God. And we push back and says, well, God can bring about Christ-likeness in peacetime. And he says, yeah, that's true. We can be thankful when things are good, but that's not the exquisite means by which God sanctifies us. Because at 72 and sunny, we really don't see our hearts. And if we don't really see our hearts, we don't know what the scripture, how we need to be sanctified by God. So it's in the midst of suffering that our hearts become most visible that now we take the word of God and the gospel and we're able to fight the battle against the remaining sin in our life to a greater degree. And that that, when we do that, when we become more Christ-like, our capacity for loving God grows. And so... uh, Two words he said, conformity will lead to more capacity. The more you're conformed into the image of Christ, the more you're going to have the capacity to enjoy Christ. So if suffering brings about Christ's likeness or conformity into his image, he says that's not the end. The end is now your capacity to enjoy Christ grows. He gets this from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says that when a person dies, their capacity to love Christ, uh, in a sense, is capped there. So that it's true in heaven, everyone will have the fullness of joy in Christ. Some people will have the capacity to glory in Christ as much as the thimble. So that person in heaven will have experience fullness of joy in Christ to a thimble degree. And someone else who's more conformed in the image of Christ will have a greater capacity. It might be like a cup. Someone else like a swimming pool. Maybe the Apostle Paul like the ocean. And his illustration was this. He's a pilot uh, in the Air Force. His dad was a pilot Uh, and Chuck Yeager was the first man to break uh, 
uh, to travel faster than the speed of sound. And he broke the sound barrier. And, and he said, after talking to Justin, who's also a pilot, he said, if Chuck Yeager walked into this room, most, he died a couple years ago, but if he would walk into the room, he said, most of you wouldn't know who he is. You wouldn't think much of him. But Justin and I would, in awe and reverence, approach him because we've been conformed into his image to some degree. The capacity to appreciate Chuck Yeager was determined by how much they were conformed into the image of a pilot. And if we're to be conformed in the image of Christ, uh, to whatever degree we are, our capacity to love him and enjoy him forever. So eternal, eternity, eternal joy is at stake in your sanctification. And I, I went back to the cabin after the first day and I thought, wait a minute. If suffering is the most exquisite means which brings about sanctification and sanctification being conformed into the image of Christ, gradually growing in righteousness will enlarge my heart to enjoy Christ more, to have better glory vision, is the, is the way he put in. Then at the end of my life, I don't know that I'm going to stand there and say, I wish God would have gave me less suffering. If the exquisite means to sanctify us is in the difficult times, then even our suffering is, works for our good, which is exactly what the Bible teaches us. Uh, so, I, <clears throat> so the job of the counselor, I think I want to do this first. Uh, the role of the counselor then is fundamentally to come alongside someone who's going through suffering and is struggling and to help lift their eyes up and see that God is bigger than their circumstance. You see, when our eyes, when our circumstance is big, God is small. But when God is sovereign over the circumstance, our circumstance becomes small and our God becomes big. And it's the job of the counselor to strengthen one another's faith, to lift our heads up and see Christ. So look at 1 Thessalonians 3.1. 1 Thessalonians 3.1. So the Thessalonians have been suffering and have been experiencing affliction. And so Paul sent Timothy to them. And we read in verse 1 this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy. 
They were willing to send Timothy because of concern for their suffering. He says, we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to do what? Here's the work of the counselor. To establish and exhort you in your faith. That no one be moved by these afflictions. So the word established would be the same word if a building began to become weak and was about to fall over and a carpenter came and brought fresh wood, fresh boards, and strengthened it, reinforced the building. That's what it, that, that's something of what the word means, that Timothy's to show up. They're going through afflictions, and as Timothy shows up with the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wants to establish and strengthen their faith in God in the midst of the suffering. And to exhort, to speak truth. The way faith is built up is by words. From one pilgrim to another pilgrim, as we lift each other's heads to Christ and we exhort one another to believe in the midst of the affliction. To, so it says to exhort one another in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. The illustration Dr. Fain gave here is it's like when you throw a rock in the water and it ripples. Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonians so that when they're experiencing this great affliction and suffering, their faith wouldn't have ripples in it. It wouldn't be shaken towards unbelief. So the role of the counselor, the role we have for one another as we all experience difficulty in a fallen world is to come to one another and strengthen and establish one another's faith so that in the affliction we're not shaken. And so this was an example he gave. And then in verse 4 it says, uh, when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. That, that's what was his concern. He wasn't mainly concerned with how bad they suffered and how difficult it was. It's not that he didn't care about that. But his fundamental concern was, what's your faith doing in the midst of the affliction? So he, I, I, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. When does the devil show up most strong? And what is he saying? In the midst of suffering, the devil shows up and puts doubt in the goodness of God in your mind starts to shake your face, starts to make us question whether or not 
God is good. And it's your responsibility when my life shakes to come to me, not afraid of me that I might lash out at you. It's actually your job to come to me and ask me how my faith is doing in God. And if I'm struggling to lift my head and strengthen me in Christ, my biggest enemy is not suffering, is not a circumstance, it's sin. And that very moment of affliction can be God's greatest tool to help me kill sin and trust in God. He had all these alliterations. Suffering is not your biggest, biggest enemy. Self-sufficiency is. Suffering is not your biggest enemy. Self-sufficiency is. Okay. So then, his favorite biblical counseling text that he starts with with everyone is Mark 4. So that's the text I want to preach this morning. And uh, three questions we were given to ask every time you read narrative in the Bible. Every time you read narrative in the Bible, you are to ask first, what would come out of me if I were there? The beauty of narrative is we can hop into the story and in someone else's affliction, we can test ourselves and say, what would I have done in this narrative? Second, we're to look what is God's agenda? What is God doing? If he's providentially sovereign over every circumstance, well, what is God doing in the midst of any particular narrative we read in the scripture? And third, what, is, what ought to be your response to God's agenda? Or what is your response to God's agenda? First ask what it is. And then you find, might find out if you need to repent or not. What is your response as you see God's agenda? So let's look at one. Let's look at Mark 4, 35, beginning in verse 5, 35. On that day when evening had come, he being Christ said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. Now here's the question. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate says, let's go to the other side, who thinks they're going to make it to the other side? Do you understand the question? Okay, actually, raise your hand, all right? If God incarnate says, let's go to the other side, who thinks they're going to make it to the other side? All right, I'm kind of trapping you, and you kind of sensed it, I think. <laughs> Dr. Fain said, I'm going to hold you to that. Jesus said, we're going to the other side, but as we jump into the story, let's find out if we would actually believe that or not. 
And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. What does that mean? Jesus didn't turn in to just a spiritual being. He's God incarnate in the flesh. He has lungs like we have. If water fills Jesus' lungs, he will die. So he got into the boat just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now, why does he say that? Well, Fane's suspicion is the main, because Peter is Mark's main source in writing the Gospel of Mark. He thinks reading Peter's letters gives us a clue to why he says other boats were there. And uh, what he pointed to is 1 Peter 5, uh, in verse 6, here's what Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then he says, Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So when the devil comes, Peter says, don't think your suffering's unique. That's his main tool. He'll come and he'll say, you're the only one going through this. I know that Christians throughout the ages dealt with it this way, but now this suffering's unique. It's a special category, a special kind, and so right here, right now, we don't need to obey God in His Word. One of the devil's tricks is to make us feel like we're the only one that has gone through this. And yet the writer of Hebrews says, Christ uh, was tested in the same kinds, the, the, the same realms that we are tested in, every one of them. And so these disciples aren't going to be the only boat in this storm. There's actually other boats out at sea during this storm. And then in verse 37, a great windstorm arose and waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already feeling, filling. Now, there's three repeated words in this text. Verse 37, you see great windstorm. Verse 39, you see great calm. And then in verse 41, you see great fear. And so Mark is wanting us to think how these relate to one another. He wants us to see this, I think. And let's put ourselves in their shoes, pitch black, on the water. I know this is scary. When, when, we, when we go mule deer hunting uh, north of pier, 
we leave from the boat dock and when we go across Lake Awahish, which uh, at that point is, is about a mile and a half across maybe, and it's pitch black. It's like four in the morning and you can't see anything and I don't really trust my brother driving the boat anyways. And my brother's driving and he's looking at his little sonar thing and I'm looking out and I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm shining my spotlight. There's nothing for it to bank off against. Just pitch black. And my brother's going 35 miles an hour for some reason. I don't know why we're in such a hurry. But I'm just picturing land coming and us flying up on the land but it's scary. I mean, during the day, we came back one time when the waves were this high on Lake Oahe, and in the light, I was scared to death. I thought we were going down. But in the pitch black, a great windstorm arose on the Sea of Galilee, which was not uncommon, so that the waves were crashing into the boat. Are you there? Put yourself in their shoes. Dr. Fain says they're wearing uh, wool dresses, which would be tough to swim in. <laughs> so you're on the boat. It's pitch black. You can't get your balance. It'd be one thing if you could be steady and think of something to do, but all your senses are being thrown awry. The boat's throwing you this way. The water's hitting you this way. You can't see nothing. Chaos is ensuing. A great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. Jesus was fully human. And ministry was exhausting. And he needed to sleep. And he was sleeping really well. We've never gone to sleep without some sort of anxiety or fear. But Christ is sleeping well in the midst of this storm. And they awoke him and said to him, so... I feel weird just hearing this sermon and then preaching it myself. Dr. Fade, this is his words. He goes, I think it's Peter probably because he's the spokesman usually. But they went to him and he says, if it was Peter, he took his filthy, rotten hands and put it on the Lord of glory and grabbed him and said, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, if I'm there, I don't think I'd do one ounce better. How about you? How do you think you're going to do? Are you going to do better than they did? In fact, I read this story my whole life thinking... They're not doing anything wrong. This is what it means to be human. Well, this is what it means to be sinfully human. Because look at what 
Jesus says. Well, and one other thing I'd point out here is the suffering they're beginning to experience, the difficult circumstance, has now revealed a lack of trust in Christ that wouldn't have been revealed until the storm came. All right? So that same unbelief in Christ was there, that lack of trust in Christ was there before the storm, but they didn't know it was there until the storm came and it was revealed. And verse 39, it says, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. It didn't kind of go calm. There's a great calm. What's great calm look like? How can you put great before calm? Well, I take it here that in one... Have you, have you ever been in one of those wave pools where the wave pool will run for 10 minutes and then they shut it off for five minutes? And no one wants it to shut off because then you got to get out of the pool and get cold and everyone wants to get back in. And you know the 10 minutes is about up and then all of a sudden it's like, are the waves getting smaller? And then you don't know at first you look around and the waves slowly get lower. I'm wondering if this was a supernatural calm that went calm like this. It was a great storm. Great windstorm. Now a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Or... A better translation would be, why are you cowards? He says, this Greek word, when you look at it, it's like the translators didn't want to make Jesus look like too big a meanie, but Jesus looks at them and says, why are you cowards? Which they translate, so afraid. Why are you cowards? Now, Dr. Fain said, this sort of counseling gets the counselor kicked out of every counseling ministry there ever was. He said, in fact, you would kick him out of your church if he counseled this way. What kind of question is that? Waves are breaking into the boat. They're about ready to drown. And the question the counselor says is, why are you cowards? Why are you cowards? When most times this text is preached, the sermon's already over. And the point of the sermon is, is Jesus will calm the storms of your life. But that's turning Jesus into the therapist. Because the goal of the world is what? Just to get out of the circumstance. To just get relief. But the goal of God is your sanctification, the strengthening of your faith. So Jesus, with his mouth, wants to talk about their faith. He wants them to consider their faith. 
Why are you so afraid? He verbally confronts their lack of faith. It was a sin for them to disbelieve and doubt God during the storm. Why? What did Jesus say? We, let's go to the other side. Jesus said that. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And if all of us jump into the story, we all do the same thing. And so we all look at each other and say, yeah, that's no big deal. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does. He asks a counseling question. And he says, why are you cowards? Do you still have no faith? Matthew's gospel, Jesus asked him this before he calms the storm. So he did it before and he did it after. I don't think they probably heard it real well. But I think they're hearing it now. Verse 41 says, they were filled with great fear. There's the last great. And he said, and, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The circumstance was big. It was big and it was terrifying. It was great. It was causing them to be cowards. And then Jesus counsels their faith a little bit, and now there's great fear. No longer the wind is so great, no longer is the storm so great. They didn't all of a sudden start singing kumbaya and, and, and have a party because of this great miracle they saw. Now they were seeing God and trembling before him, which is the place we must be in the midst of suffering. We must see that our God is bigger than the circumstance, that he's sovereign over the circumstance. Turn with me to Psalm 107. I know it's hot, and that's just a little bit of pressure or suffering poured on you, just a little bit, but that's okay. Psalm 107. In this psalm, it is put together uh, in a method that the way you could conceive of it is there's an A point, a B point, a B point, and an A point, all right? In verse 4, this section describes suffering that is not from a person's own making. It's from circumstances, circumstantial suffering. In verse 10, it's suffering of their own making, sinful making. In verse 17, there's suffering of their own making. And then in verse 23, there's suffering of their own making. And the sufferers, both in the, the person who's suffering because a tornado hits their house and the person who's suffering because they committed adultery, all the sufferers do the same thing 
and receive redemption from God. See, sometimes we think, well, what do we do if I got this kind of suffering or that kind of suffering? Here, all the sufferers cry out to God for help. And you look at uh, verse 6, they cried out to God in their trouble. And, it, and then it says, he delivered them in their distress. Verse 13, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. Verse 19, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. All right? So now let's take the last category, verse 23. Some, here's the suffering. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works. All right? Remember that. Wondrous works. It's going to show up again in verse 31. They saw his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind and lifted the waves from the, of the sea. So the works they saw was God creating a storm. God is the one who raises the storm. The devil doesn't raise the sea. His wondrous works here come from a command. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage met, melted away in their evil plight. So it'd be like natural evil, right? A big storm. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. But then here's what they did. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven, which would be shore. And then verse 31 says this, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. And everyone would think the steadfast love is what? Just that it got calmed. But what does he say? For his wondrous works to the children of man. Well, what was the wondrous works? It was the storm. Is he really asking us to thank him for our suffering? That it would lift our eyes to the Lord, that we would be delivered? We would be delivered by him? And then it says, let them extol the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns the rivers into a desert. That would be a bad thing. The rivers turn into a desert and springs of water into thirsty ground. God's the one who does these things. But when he does them, he does good. One more text. Go to Romans 5. And then we'll draw it to a close. Romans 5. <clears throat> Verse 1, therefore, 
Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's justification. When you, when you understand the gospel that you're a sinner and you deserve the wrath of God, but Jesus came down, took on flesh, stood in your place, lived the perfect life you could never live. And when he went to the cross, he took his sins, our, your sins on him. He had no sins. He took our sins, put them on him, and he bore the wrath of God so that he took God's wrath and we get peace with God. That's a good thought, right? Let's just stop there and rejoice. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, for this is a gracious thing. I mean, he says, through him we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So let's rejoice all day long in our justification, right? We should never minimize that. But he's not done rejoicing. Look at verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? So, so you're going to thank God for the storm? We thank God, or we rejoice in our sufferings, not because he is a masochist and just likes to suffer, but knowing that suffering produces endurance. It toughens you up. It strengthens your faith. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character. That's sanctification. Rejoice in suffering because it makes you tough and it makes you more like Jesus. Gives you character. And character produces what? Hope. Now, what does everyone want in suffering? We want some sort of hope. We want some sort of hope. And a therapist can try to say, well, maybe we can find relief for you over here. Maybe we can pull you out, but that therapist isn't in control of the circumstances, is he? The hope we look for in suffering is just relief. But Paul says, Re rejoice in your suffering for it produces endurance and endurance produces character, Christ-likeness, and character produces hope. How so? Because there's no way you or I can be conformed to the image of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit living inside us. And so if we grow and become more like Christ through our suffering, that couldn't happen apart from the Holy Spirit. And if I have the Holy Spirit, then I have this seal. Then my inheritance is secure and my salvation is secure and my faith is real. And hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. That's our hope. So when you've been through suffering and your faith is toughened up and your circumstances became smaller and God became bigger and he started conforming you into the image of Christ, hope starts to come because you see the Holy Spirit is the one doing that. 
if the Holy Spirit is the one doing that, then your inheritance is secure in Christ. And so he says there's three ways to handle suffering. There's the British way that says, get a stiff upper lip and just say, I'm tough. I'm just going to, I'm just going to deal with it. I'm, I'm going to toughen up, just deal with it. And then there's the way most Christians deal with it. They say, I'm going to rejoice in the midst of suffering. So suffering is this thing here. And I'm going to rejoice God at the same time this is going on over here. But what is Paul asking us to do? He's asking us to rejoice in the suffering, knowing that God is the one who's even sovereign over the storm. God doesn't turn evil into good. Evil is always evil. Cancer is always natural evil. But that can work eternal good in our lives. We don't have to pretend like evil things are good things. But we do need to know that God is sovereign over every circumstance and that he works his best good in the midst of it. 